You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest, bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest podcast. My name is Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Daryl Hudson. He is co-founder and chief innovation officer at Good Cap Pharmaceuticals. We're going to talk about the world of psychedelics. We're going to talk about research. We're going to talk about science. We're going to talk about clinical trials. Uh, Daryl and his team are doing some really interesting work in really understanding how this stuff works. <laughs> like, what do psychedelics do? What are the um, kind of underlying sort of modes or, or methods of action? And, and how is that actually helping uh, different conditions, diagnoses, how we uh, really apply this from a therapeutic point of view. Um, we have a lot to learn still in these areas, um, but Daryl's really got some strong science background and strong understanding and really a lot of passion for this. So I'm excited to have this conversation and decided to kind of learn a little bit and um, kind of see what we know, what we don't know, uh, what we're trying to find out. So with all that, Daryl, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Before we dig into everything you're doing today with Good Cap, let's just kind of background. Like, I guess, how did you become a scientist? How did you get into neuroscience, into psychedelics? What's the kind of the story? Well, you know, my story uh, goes back to being a teenager, essentially, and, you know, experimenting with some of these substances, which uh-huh. uh, inspired me to to want to study them. So, you know, I I went to university and got a PhD in molecular biology and genetics, specifically studying plants, but also looking at fungi uh, in the hopes of, you know, bringing natural medicines to market one day through traditional pharmaceutical means. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of our blockbuster drugs have come from nature and it's been an interesting route over the past, let's say, 100 years or so where, you know, a lot of, I would say it's sort of been the era of chemistry where a lot of, you know, chemists took what nature made and tried to improve upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're very successful in many cases. That being said, I think nature still holds a, uh, a treasure trove of untapped molecules um, that have medical benefits. And, you know, we're just starting to scratch the surface, I think, with with modern biotechnology as to what a lot of these traditional medicines really do. And so that's been a lot of the work that I've done over the past decade has been, you know, looking at natural medicines, how you can cultivate them sustainably, produce them sustainably, but also extract them and formulate them in a way that uh, is medically efficacious, but also, you know, is able to be approved by the regulatory bodies. I'm curious in your view, I mean, in terms of what we're doing or trying to do with psychedelics today, I mean, is this just yet another compound, just like any other kind of drug development process or going through the motions of you would normally do? Or is there something different or unique about psychedelics, either because of the the compounds or the how we're trying to apply them? I mean, what's similar and what's different from other, other type of drug development processes? Very good question. I think psychedelics have a sort of an interesting role as spiritual entheogens as well, right? And that is what I think sets them apart from most classical drugs. 
That being said, you know, on a molecular level, as a scientist, they are molecules that interact with receptors in the body, causing mm -hmm. downstream signaling cascades, which alter the molecular chemistry of a person. Yeah. And as we are able to understand that a lot more, we're able to use these drugs in different ways. And so, you know, traditionally, and I think how most of the early stage companies have looked at these drugs have been really twofold. One is how do we use the high dose therapies with psychotherapy to uh -huh. sort of take that deep dive and go way in and, you know, deal with traumas and things like that. But then there's been a second class that wanted to sort of engineer the trip out of yeah. the experience, right? And mm -hmm. see if you could actually get efficacy without the high. Yeah. Where I think my company falls is sort of like in a third class where I, I came at this slightly different approach in that most medicines that we take, you know, the doctors prescribe you the least amount that's efficacious, the minimally effective dose to start, right? And mm -hmm. they're like, start here and work your way up. And even with cannabis, you know, we saw that the go low and slow yep. method was was best for most people. And so I, I think, you know, when we're talking about natural medicines, it's very interesting that psychedelics are often introduced to people in the exact opposite way. And they say, take as much as possible. A macro dose. <laughs> Let's crack you open and then we'll figure out how to put you back together. Yeah, exactly. Why don't you go talk to God and figure it out? But, you know, from a twofold, from an acceptance standpoint of both the patient and the doctors, you know, that's a tough one because yeah. there's a lot to unpack there. And it's not just easy to prescribe someone a single dose and say, okay, things are going to be better now. And so, you know, again, I, I worked in the cannabis industry and I saw how CBD was really an interesting turning point in cannabinoid medicine, because now we had a medicine that did not get people high and it, you know, was accepted by many doctors as being a medicine rather than just a drug. Right. Yeah. And I think when we look at psychedelics, many doctors are going to you know, not understand these molecules, they're not educated on them, and they're not going to be able to confidently prescribe them to their patients, meaning a lot of patients that really need these are probably going to miss out. And so that's really the approach that I took early days with psychedelics was how do we reduce the dose as much as possible and still gain efficacy? And in order to do that, um, you know, I really started looking at polypharmacy and like what other molecules can we combine with psychedelics to potentiate their effects in one way huh. or another. And, and that's really what the basis of our company has been is understanding these transient receptor potential agonists, which are really ion channels that um, are very important in the body. They, they sense your environment essentially. Yeah. So they sense heat and light and cold and all sorts of different things. Um, and the Nobel Prize in medicine was given for them in 2021, just because they're such an important and hot topic yeah. in the current understanding of disease progression, as well as disease treatment. Yeah. So what these do is they, you know, they signal to the brain from the gut, but they also signal within the brain different electrical currents. And these, you know, these currents are really helping to channel the downstream signaling that's happening from psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So you know, your psychedelic molecules are traditionally thought to interact with these G protein coupled receptors, the 5-HT mm -hmm. serotonin receptors, and yep. then send sort of this downstream signaling cascade, which at some point is very reliant on calcium. Oh, interesting. And these ion channels, really what they do is they affect how calcium is dispersed within the cell as well as within the body. 
And so we were able to sort of start to experiment with these different TRP receptor agonists and see how they worked both, you know, in cell culture, but also I had a microdose retreat in Jamaica mm-hmm. where we could, you know, essentially use different spices from the cupboard and actually get feedback from people yeah. saying this did alter the effects, you know, this, this reduced this side effect of psilocybin or this, you know, potentiated this effect of psilocybin. And so that was really the foundation for us drafting a, a very large patent that, um, you know, we hope we'll get some very interesting IP out of, um, you know, specifically formulation based IP that we have now gone through a lot of animal trials at different universities and started to prove out the theory. When you refer to psychedelic, you know, we've got plant medicine, we've got some animal medicine, we've got, uh, you know, laboratory created compounds. I guess, what do you kind of define or what's your kind of focus in terms of kind of compounds or sources for these medicines? Like, how do you kind of organize the world of psychedelics? Uh, Good question. Again, I'm a molecular biologist, so I'm going to sort things typically based on the pathways that they interact with. Mm -hmm. So you know, really what we've been talking about are classical serotonin receptor agonists. Okay. And what's interesting is even in the past year, there's multiple papers that have come out that have shown that our understanding of of these psychedelics and how they interact with these receptors is actually not as good as we thought. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, We're not as smart as we thought we were. Yeah. I mean, there's one paper that showed that some of these psychedelics are actually going inside the cell versus then just sitting on the outside of the cell. And there's been some very recent animal research showing that the anti-inflammatory effects of certain psychedelics are probably through glucocorticoid signaling pathways rather than through the 5-HT2A distinctly. Oh, really? So (laughs) we definitely know that these molecules are a little bit promiscuous. They don't necessarily just hit one receptor, even within the serotonin receptor family. They're usually tickling a few other receptors beyond the 5-HG2A, which is considered the sort of psychedelic response agonist. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, I like to look at them based on what they're interacting with and then what is the downstream signaling cascade. Yeah. So again, even when you look within the psychedelic molecules, there was some very, very good research done just looking at their potential as anti-inflammatories and showing that very minor changes in the molecular structure took away the anti-inflammatory effect. And so molecules like psilocybin and 4-ACO-DMT and DOI would have you know very strong anti-inflammatory potential, but DMT and 5-MeO had almost none. And and on a molecular level, when you look at these molecules, they're really not that different. So this is where I think psychedelics is a very broad class that was described based on, again, mind manifesting. So we're describing these molecules based on the fact that they're altering people's minds, which is a very, very broad class, right? So now that we start to split this up into ergolines and tryptamines and the different receptors that they're interacting with. And then, you know, starting to branch out now into things like iboga, which, yeah. you know, really we have very little understanding of how this molecule is working. Yeah, um, It's quite interesting. And I think we will see, you know, I don't want to say the psychedelic term is go by the wayside, but it is, you know, a classical term that yeah. does not encompass the specificity or the activity of the broad class of molecules that now fit within that psychedelic category. Yeah. You mentioned cannabis, and I always found that, um, you know, cannabis was complicated or problematic when it came to, you know, more kind of a medicine or a medicinal approach, and that 
you know, you're, you're dealing with a very complicated cocktail of cannabinoids and terpenes and things like that, that people aren't consuming. And this whole kind of entourage effect, right? Like kind of being able to kind of break this down into, oh, okay, well, this is what's happening from, you know, in terms of what's going on inside your body and the receptors, you know, it's been super problematic to actually put it through any kind of trial or, or treat it as a drug like we normally treat drugs, whereas psychedelics seems to be at least a little bit more able to kind of go through a traditional drug development clinical trial kind of process because we can kind of reduce it down to a molecule. Although some of what you're saying maybe implies that it actually is still complicated. And is that, I mean, guess how much is psychedelics just like any other drug? I've heard stories that we still don't understand how Tylenol actually works, but it works. So we use, you know, correct. Like, yeah. how much do we need to know about this stuff versus how much do we just need to understand the impact it has? And as long as that's positive, we'll use it. Wow. That's a, it's a, Absolutely wonderful question, um, and and I'm gonna you know go back to cannabis how how we started yep. here. So you know one of the interesting headlines that we had early cannabis medicine is Rick Simpson oil, and so yeah. this is you know a mishmash of a whole bunch of strains you throw together and you get this dark tarry looking non medical pro. You know, oh, like I've made it. I've, I know how it's 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 a very rough process. <laughs> It's also beautiful though, and it is yeah. it has worked for many people. However, yeah. to try and take that through a regulatory process where you have different strains of cannabis producing hundreds of different molecules in yeah. different ratios at different times, trying to extract that and stabilize that and make a product out of that is very, very difficult. And so, you know, what we did in our lab was do agnostic extractions, put all sorts of different extracts on tissue cultures and cancer cells and just blindly saw what they did but then try to deconstruct it to the top molecules that were responsible for those effects. Because really to take one molecule through a clinical trial is very hard. To take two molecules through a, a clinical trial is almost more than exponentially difficult, right? Depending on whether they call it a new chemical entity or a combination therapy. You know, if you're a combination therapy, you have to do your regular drug arm, your placebo arm, plus two other arms, each oh, of the geez. individual drugs, right? Yeah, so now yeah. you've more than doubled the costs of your trial, the patience of the trial, you know, so these types of things do make it very, very difficult to bring botanical or fungal medicines to market in their natural sort of state or ratios. Yeah. Um, obviously, there are regulatory changes that happen in certain jurisdictions, which may allow for these extracts to come to market. But even so, the amount of capital that you'd have to throw at it to, to make something that you're going to be able to get an FDA or Health Canada claim behind, you know, due to stability. Well, I mean, we have an example. GW Pharmaceuticals yep. did it, right? Yep. And they were one of the few people that have been able to do it. And I'm not just talking about cannabis. I mean, we've had a botanical drug designation program with the FDA for 20 some odd years. And I think there's maybe five products, like don't quote me on that, but- Wow, I didn't realize that, yeah. There's very, very few products that have made it through that process. And it's not that people don't apply. There's thousands and thousands of applications. They just can't it's, make it through. Yeah. It's again, you have to have a standardized cultivation. You have to have a standardized extraction. You have to show that the product coming off is- standardized not only on a chemical basis but also on a efficacious basis like it has to work within the same window you know you have to look at stability and breakdown and storage and you know all of these things really really start to add up when you can just chemically synthesize a molecule and show that it's stable and standardized right yeah. so that's that's where even my company um 
when we were running the retreat in Jamaica, you know, I was often combining many, many of these different TRP agonists together, usually in a chocolate, mm -hmm. which has its own medical properties, you know, MAO inhibitors and things that probably work in concert with psilocybin to make yep. it better. Yep. But, you know, uh, getting a doctor to prescribe a chocolate is probably not going to happen in, <laughs> in the next little while, right? So this is where yeah. I, I can see I, it now. Do you want you want semi-dark? Do you want dark? Do you want milk? Like yeah, exactly. You know, dark cacao, Ecuadorian. Um, uh, but but really, this is where we went back to the lab and we said, okay, these were the products that were working the best for these indications. Let's look at each one of the ingredients, deconstruct what's in them, put those products, you know, specifically on, let's say, inflamed cells, right? Because we were looking at these mostly as anti-inflammatories and see which ones had the most anti-inflammatory potential. And you do that in concentration gradients. So you can see where they start to actually kill cells and become toxic or lose their inflammatory effect. And then we stacked psychedelics on top of them. Same thing with concentration gradients to find sort of that sweet spot where the ratio of psychedelic to TRP receptor agonist improved the anti-inflammatory effect <laughs> and that was again sort of the basis for us then taking products into animal trials where we have now done very similar things we cause inflammation in either mouse or rat models <laughs> and then apply these drugs either before the inflammation or after the inflammation and see if these combinations of in this case psilocybin plus eugenol which is you know, it's it's the active ingredient in clove oil, but it's also oh, in ho holy basil and a whole bunch of other, you know, medicinal herbs. Mm -hmm. um, it's also a generally regarded as safe, so a grass molecule um, approved in dentistry. It's used as an analgesic, it's antiseptic, it's mm -hmm. antioxidant, it's anti-inflammatory. Again, this is not just me saying this, the literature said all of yes. this. Um, but when we combine it with psilocybin, we really do see this synergistic effect that potentiates either molecules specifically around inflammatory cytokines and very important ones that, you know, have drawn a lot of press in the last few years, like COX-2 and interleukin-6. <laughs> and so, you know, when you start to look at the company that I've built, I never really considered it a psychedelics company. Um, I always considered it a drug development company that was, yep. you know, going to be trying to get psychedelic molecules to be accepted. Because again, I think the acceptance and the access to these molecules is sort of the rising tide that floats all of the boats in this scenario, right? Yeah. So I really think that because we have a low-dose anti-inflammatory product that's non-hallucinatory, non-intoxicating, um, you know, can be prescribed by a doctor in a very traditional manner that most prescriptions happen, say maybe a 10 to 14-day window, mm -hmm. take this home, try it out, see if it works. Uh, we know it works almost immediately, right? So it's one of those things where we tried to check all the boxes that would allow this to be accepted both by doctors and regulators. And, you know, I'm very excited to say that we're we're ready to under clinical trials now, right? So we've, yeah. uh, we're just going out and raising some money to be able to execute on a phase one in Australia. And, uh, you know, it's been a long road to get here, but all of the data that, that we've collected is just, again, corroborating the efficacy of these molecules as well as the hypothesis that uh, that we had around their anti-inflammatory effect. Yeah. Do you think this is the future of psychedelic medicine? I mean, I, there's so much work getting put into psychedelics that do impact, you know, psychological experience, you know, have some kind of trip associated with them. And then now you're dealing with 
preparatory work, administration, like the whole context of the experience itself, post-experience integration. You know, there's all these kind of therapeutic models, training, facilities, you know, technology that's being developed. I mean, uh, do you feel like this is just not really sustainable or not really practical in terms of really bringing the power of this medicine, you know, to kind of the masses and that we really need to focus on something that's a, a little bit more traditional drug delivery model? Yeah, I think it opens the door. Now, now again, you know, what you sort of spoke of there, I would say is the wellness tourism market, which mm -hmm. is a, you know, almost a trillion dollar market, not yeah. just psychedelics, but you know, wellness yeah. tourism isn't going anywhere. Yeah. And it's doing quite well. And you tack psychedelics on there, especially in a professional setting. And I yeah. think that is going to be one interesting way that people change their travel and vacation habits potentially. Yep. But you're right. What I'm talking about is most people, and I'm talking, you know, the soccer moms that are having an afternoon wine and feeling like crap, but yep. really want something better so that they don't feel all depressed. You know, they're not going to try this we've pulled them, you know, we've pulled yeah. doctors to say, would you prescribe a psychedelic? And, you know, the ratio of people that answer yes to that, to the ratio of people that, or the number of people that say, would you prescribe an anti-inflammatory? The answer is a hundred percent. Everybody prescribes those every day. Yeah. Right. So I think the future of psychedelics to answer your question is polypharmacy. And mm -hmm. I think that's not just psychedelics, that's medicine. Yeah. You know, because what we've done through the chemical approach over the past hundred years or so was say X plus Y equals Z right? This drug affects this thing and it does this. And then we ignored all of the imbalances and all of the side effects. Maybe that was strategic from a corporate perspective. So we could come up with a new drug for those. But, you know, now that we have like artificial intelligence and machine learning and, you know, the ability to sample someone's blood and determine like 95% of what's going on in their biology at the current time, you know, but also like compare that to other people. We're going to get very interesting approaches to medicine, I think, where you aren't just prescribed one thing. It's like, you know, it's funny because it, it's almost like we're going full circle where you <laughs> exactly you go back to the old medicine men of, of tribes and things uh -huh. like that. And very rarely was it like this one plant is what's yeah. going to fix so you. I, I have new toa frog, right? Like it's, it's a combination of things that create the compound. Exactly. Yeah. Traditional Chinese herbal medicines, Ayurvedic medicines often had six, eight, 12 things in them, you know, and yeah. maybe that was because they didn't know what was working for what, hey, or maybe it was because the combination of things worked better. Yeah. And in my theory, you know, it's that our product is working so much better because we're not causing a blockade or only stimulating one thing, right? It, because it's a little bit more promiscuous. It's almost mm -hmm. like, you know, rather than creating a dam and just upregulating serotonin the way SSRIs do, we're sort of spinning the bicycle wheels faster, you know, mm -hmm. and just upregulating the entire system. So, you know, we're going to be able to monitor that stuff much better in the future. Yeah. And I think that will lead to doctors understanding more of what a patient needs in real time so that they can say, oh, you know what? You actually need iron too and zinc because if you take this drug, yeah. it actually relies on a zinc transporter. And if your zinc isn't being transported properly, then it causes all these imbalances, right? Yeah. yeah. So I love science. So this, you know, it's yeah. very exciting for me to be able to dig in on a molecular level and see exactly where these different molecules are interacting. And it's, you know, it's phenomenal because they have different effects even within different brain regions. Right. And yeah. so now when you start to talk about serotonin signaling, I mean, 95% of it is really in the gut and 
and outside of your brain. Yeah. So, you know, we can start to treat the whole body and the whole organism again, I think, whereas for medicine has been very pigeonholed into treating symptomology yeah, and not getting to the root of a lot of disease states. And that's really what this drug that we've designed, I think the difference between all the other medications that are prescribed for PTSD right now is that most of them are for symptomology and our product gets right at the root of the issue, which is inflammation and oxidative stress. Yeah. So I find when I'm reading books, uh, like I'll read a book and then that book will reference or recommend two or three other books and pretty soon my, my library is like exponentially too big. Like I find like at some level, this the, the more we learn about these things, the more we learn about what we don't know. And it's like the, the space of learning is getting outpaced by the space of realizing what we don't understand about these things. I mean, I guess, where do you feel like we're actually getting some traction and we're actually really kind of starting to understand how these compounds work, how the body works with them, and what are we learning? What's kind of coming at us at realizing that we don't really understand these other things that we need to really figure out at some point? Yeah, absolutely. Science is a rabbit hole. Um, but yeah. what I would say is at some point, I think you do hit near the bottom. <laughs> okay. All right. Are we close? Well, PTSD, I'm just going to take that. That's yeah. our lead indication. And in, in PTSD research over the past three to five years, the papers that have come out have drastically altered our understanding of this disease and how it progresses. And, you know, these are amazing studies coming out of like Walter Reed with six other schools that have done literally hundreds of war combat exposed veterans, stratified them done full genome transcriptome metabolome profiling and used you know computational technology to start to pull out like what is the correlation between all of these people or is there a correlation between all of these people and and the results have been quite astounding so you know just to walk through it quick yeah ptsd obviously is caused by stress right and that can be a single traumatic event that this person replays over and over or you know repeat chronic stress like an ambulance driver or someone that's you know regularly having this upregulation of cortisol and adrenaline so this is you know this is your brain and your body's natural response to stress is to upregulate these hormones but as a result of that they go all throughout your body and they actually cause inflammation and over time what we're finding is that sort of you know constant fight or flight response that people are in is basically rewiring the body to have this increased inflammation and oxidative stress. And so again, these are sort of very key markers, interleukins and cytokines um, that seem to be elevated in these populations. And as a result of that, they also have correlations in all sorts of other diseases such as cardiac issues, right? So people with PTSD suffer much higher rates of cardiac issues, again, because their body is sort of in this amped, upregulated, stressed state. And that understanding has been very key for us in rather than treating the mental health, you know, symptoms, if you will, which yeah. are, are very significant. You know, I, I know people that can't go outside or like, mm -hmm. because of their war experiences, they cannot be more than a foot from a wall, like they needed their back to a wall. So for guys like that to go grocery shopping and go through the middle aisles is, you know, impossible. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And then I've seen it. It's, it's absolutely miraculous. They take a microdose with, with some of these TRPs yeah. in it and they can go to work, they can go to school and pick up their kids. They can go grocery shopping. You know, it doesn't deal with the trauma, the deep, deep, like I'm going to dive in and unbear, unpack this trauma and yeah. come up with a pearl of wisdom sort of a yeah. thing. 
but it does downregulate these oxidative stress and inflammatory proteins, which then reduces all of that sort of symptomology. And I think in that state, now you've got a much better chance of, of success with, with dealing with the deep rooted issues of yeah. trauma. Yeah. And so, you know, and it's really interesting that even within traumatized populations, so there's been some great papers that came out like in Nature, the top science magazine in the world, showing mm -hmm. that you can stratify PTSD populations based on different biological markers. And so you can actually see a difference in, you know, sexually exposed children versus war exposed war veterans wow. in which genes are upregulated. And so it may be that minor tweaks in the formulation, for instance, um, may be better for one subset of PTSD population versus another. And so, you know, we did not have the technology to unpack or understand this even a few years ago. And yeah. now it's, it's at our fingertips. Yeah. And again, you know, you start to plug all these amazing AIs and stuff into there and, and yeah. we, we now have predictive capacity too, where it can say, okay, well, if this population has these genes affected and this population has these genes affected, like what drugs treat both? Yeah. Or, you know, what, or what, or what, what cocktail don't. Exactly. combination. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's a very exciting time for me, I think, in pharmaceutical drug development because, you know, traditionally you would take thousands of compounds, you would kind of just throw them all at the wall, see which ones sort of stuck right? Get them into some animals, uh -huh. see which ones killed animals. <laughs> like didn't kill animals, <laughs> yeah. we'll put them in the next stage. Yeah, exactly. And, and now we can use, you know, predictive computational technology and all sorts of things like that to, to get a better understanding of what we're looking at on a molecular and physiological level before we even go into those models. And, and then when you go into patient populations, you can actually stratify patient populations based on their their genetic biomarkers as well as their like their transcriptome what they're actually expressing at the time what is going on in this patient population now not just their dna but you know their rna and their metabolome and we're already seeing massive drug companies spend billions of dollars stratifying patient populations before they go into trials and not just for mental health but for cancer or whatever where you can say, okay, we know our drug is working on this specific pathway. And so we're only going to put patients into the trial that are affected on that pathway. And you have a much higher chance of success. This is statistically proven. So yeah, drug development is seeing massive changes because of technology. And, and it's a very exciting time to be a part of it. Obviously with COVID and yeah. the investment space, it's been a challenging couple of years. Yeah, exactly. But our team has plugged along. We've done a great amount of science. Our data continues to come out, continues to get published, corroborating this theory that, again, the root of most of the symptomology of PTSD and many other conditions is inflammation and oxidative stress. And if we can deal with the specific markers that are causing that inflammation and oxidative stress, we can usually relieve a lot of those ailments. Yeah, that's fascinating work. Daryl, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about GoodCap, what's the best way to get that information? Uh, the website, goodcap.com. You can contact us through there. My email is dhudson at goodcap.com. Um, happy to answer any questions. Again, we are uh, rapidly heading into a clinical trial in Australia and uh, you know, it's probably never been a better time to invest in our yeah. company. Um, we are private and um, you know, like I said, we've done all the things that I think 
drug development companies, both within and outside of the psychedelic space, yeah. need to do to be successful. So uh, I'm very happy with our progress and our team. And yeah, happy yeah. to chat about it. Yeah, amazing work. I highly encourage everyone to check it out. I'll make sure the links and everything in the show notes so people can get that. Daryl, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Not a problem. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. podcast.